0: Welcome to this latest episode in the Herbert Smith Freehills FDI Friday podcast series in which our foreign direct investment regulation experts are sharing their insights into FDI regimes around the globe. I'm Ruth Allen a professional support lawyer in our competition regulation and trade practice here in London and I'm joined today by Veronica Roberts UK regional head of our competition and regulatory practice who also heads up our global FDI group and Bob Moore a corporate partner who regularly advises on M&A in the pharma sector. In today's episode, we'll be taking a more in-depth look at the application of the UK national security and investment regime to M&A in the pharma sector in particular. Now, a number of the 17 sensitive sectors in which mandatory notification obligations can apply under the NSI regime are potentially relevant to pharma and healthcare M&A. In particular, synthetic biology, artificial intelligence, and advanced robotics and the potential application of the regime and the implications of the review process need to be carefully factored into deal planning from the outset and that includes for example investment in the venture capital or private equity context including investments into research with potential implications for fundraising for startups or university research spin-outs since the nsi regime entered into force in january 2022 no transactions in the pharma sector have been prohibited or cleared only subject to conditions on national security grounds. However, it's clear that this sector is very much on the authorities' radar, especially against the backdrop of the Covid-19 pandemic and heightened sensitivities surrounding foreign investment in healthcare in many jurisdictions globally. For a recap of the key features of the NSI regime more generally, please do have a listen to the first episode in this series. But for today, let's delve straight into how the regime applies in the pharma sector. Bob, could you start off by explaining in a bit more detail the sort of target company activities which could trigger a mandatory notification obligation under the NSI regime?
1: Thanks, Ruth. Well, it's certainly not the case that every acquisition in the pharma sector will necessarily be caught by by the mandatory notification obligation. But if you are acquiring a relevant level of control of the target company, so crossing the 25, 50, 75% thresholds in terms of shareholding or or indeed voting rights in the target company, then it's really important to carefully assess whether the target carries out specified activities as defined in the notifiable acquisition regulations. Um, in order to determine whether the mandatory notification obligation is indeed triggered. Um, As you mentioned already, there are 17 different sectors covered by those regulations, with the three most likely to be relevant in the pharma context being synthetic biology, AI and advanced robotics. Synthetic biology, first of all, um, now, now that's defined as the process of applying engineering principles to biology to design, redesign or make biological components that do not exist in the natural world. This is a narrower definition than what was first proposed when the NSI regime was being developed, when it, when in fact the sector was named engineering biology. But notwithstanding that, it still captures a wide range of activities. It would include, for example, design and engineering of biological-based parts of enzymes, genetic circuits, and cells, as well as using microbes to template materials, certain gene editing and gene therapy, and the use of DNA for data storage, encryption, and bio-enabled computing. There are, however, some some very important exceptions. For example, um, cell therapy, Diagnostics and industrial biotechnology R&D and production can all benefit from an exception if certain specified conditions met. And there's also a significant exception for the ownership, IP ownership or development of human or veterinary medicines and immunomodulatory approaches that employ synthetic biology at any stage of development or production. In practice, many transactions involving therapeutics companies will fall within this exception, although there are some limitations, including, for example, where the synthetic biology uses or could be implied or modified to use or deliver certain toxic chemicals. The second of the three um, sectors most likely to be relevant is artificial intelligence. Now, AI is a sector which is defined very broadly and accounted for just over 10% of transactions called in for in-depth investigation in the 12-month period to March 2023, covered by the most recent annual report on the operation of the NSI regime. Um, Now, it's clear that it can capture entities that do not necessarily identify as AI companies, and that this could extend to companies that would see themselves as uh, primarily pharmaceutical companies. Essentially, two two key questions here. The first, use of the AI. Does the entity carry on research into or develop or produce goods, software or technology that use AI? And second, application of the AI. Is the AI work of the qualifying entity used for identification, or tracking advanced robotics or cybersecurity. Now, so this could capture the use of AI for certain med tech applications, for, for example, use wearables, personalized apps to prevent and manage health conditions, or the use of AI in the context of robotics to support surgeons, although it seems unlikely to catch companies using AI in, for example, drug discovery. And then the third of the three is advanced robotics. Um, Another sensitive sector, which may be relevant to M&A in the broader healthcare sector, um, particularly if you are acquiring an interest in a target company involved in the development and production of robots for use in diagnostic or surgical settings, and that is irrespective of whether AI is involved.
0: Thanks, Bob. We've discussed in previous episodes, focusing on the application of the NSI regime to tech and energy M&A, that there is scope for seeking informal guidance from the government in advance of notifying a transaction if you're not sure whether the target's activities actually fall within the definitions in the Notifiable Acquisition Regulations. And to date, it's often proven difficult to get a clear answer in practice. But there is some cause for optimism on that front with updated guidance published back in April which indicated that the government is becoming more willing to provide informal guidance on these issues and that's certainly going to be good news for investors in the pharma sector as well. Um, I know that difficult questions can arise in practice um, when you're looking at those precise definitions that you just took us through Bob. But of course, Even where you find that you can conclude that the target's activities in a particular deal fall outside the scope of the definitions and that the mandatory notification requirement is therefore not triggered, um, or indeed that mandatory notification does not apply for another reason, such as the shareholding threshold not being met, you do still always then need to be mindful of the risk that the government could exercise its broader call-in powers um, and call in the transaction for review on its own initiative. Now, that risk of call-in can often mean that investors consider making a voluntary notification to the ISU, the Investment Security Unit, and in the pharma sector in particular, I think it's really important to flag that this can be an important consideration in the context of the acquisition or licensing of IP. Veronica, can you explain a bit more how the NSI regime applies in those circumstances and what the implications are for investors?
2: Sure. So as we discussed in more detail in the first episode in this series, the mandatory notification obligation doesn't apply to asset acquisitions, but the broader call in power does. And that call in power can be exercised at any time up to six months after the Secretary of State becomes aware of the transaction, subject to a long stop of five years after completion. And you're right, Ruth, Um, the, the definition of assets for this purpose is really broad. It includes ideas, informational techniques with technical or commercial value. And acquiring control of an asset means being able to use it or control it to a greater extent than before. So it can also apply to the licensing of IP. Now, we haven't seen any licensing agreements called in for review in the pharma sector yet, But there have been two licensing agreements in other sectors which have resulted in call-ins and ultimately in one case a prohibition decision and in the other the imposition of conditions. And the first case was a license agreement between a Chinese company and Manchester University allowing the use of IP relating to certain vision sensing tech with dual use applications. That was prohibited in July 2022. That was actually the first prohibition decision under the Act. And the second example is a licence agreement between a Canadian company and an unidentified licensed asset of Southampton University, which was considered to pose a national security risk due to the potential military uplift to foreign states. That's what um, is said on the ICU website. And conditions were imposed on that
0: in June 2023. Thanks, Veronica. In the pharma context, the licensing of IP as part of collaborations with universities is, of course, an integral part of investment and innovation. So is there any sort of exception for that scenario under the NSI regime?
1: Um, no, but there's no specific exception, um, although the government has published specific guidance for higher education institutions and, and indeed research organisations which includes various hypothetical examples aimed at helping parties to collaborations to understand how how the NSI regime will, will in practice apply to them. That guidance makes clear that qualifying entities under the NSI Act, so, so by that we mean entities which can be caught by the regime, and that can include universities, university spin-outs, or subsidiaries, research organisations, organizations and private companies who enter into agreements with a higher education institution or research organization. Um, Activities that may be subject to review include developing or forming research centers, developing university or so spin-out companies, and involvement in university research, including the funding of PhDs or other academic placements. Um, In all cases, the key question is is indeed whether a relevant degree of control is acquired over a qualifying entity or asset. Now, the the licensing of IP can be caught even where it is on a non-exclusive basis, as the relevant definition of acquiring control in this context extends to acquiring a right to use the IP. And the subsequent grant of an assignment or the conversion of a non-exclusive license to an exclusive license could also constitute another trigger event purposes of of the NSI regime, as indeed could the exercise of options to acquire IP during a product's life cycle.
2: And then of course Bob it's important isn't it to remember that outside the scope of mandatory notification you're free to choose not to notify and just accept the risk that the government might become aware of the arrangement and call it in for review after asking questions. And in some cases, that may well be a reasonable course of action to take because you've assessed the risk of calling to be low and you don't want to take the time to wait for formal clearance. But the government really has stepped up its efforts recently in terms of monitoring press reports and market intelligence. And we've started to see an increase in questions being asked about non-notified transactions as a result of that. And Bob, you and I have dealt with that in a number of current cases and recent cases, haven't we? And actually, some non-notified transactions are being called in for in-depth investigation. And the annual report that covers the period to the end of March two thousand and twenty-three shows that ten out of sixty-five called-in transactions were transactions that hadn't been notified in the first place.
1: Yeah, and and, and of course, if you do choose to notify voluntarily um, in the interests of, of certainty, which we are. Increasingly seeing. The good news is that the vast majority of transactions reviewed under the Act will be cleared within 30 working days. This was the case for 93% of transactions reviewed in the the 12-month period covered by the the annual report you referred to. Um, Nonetheless, it's also important not to underestimate the time and effort that can be needed to reach that outcome, even for deals that quite frankly have no obvious national security implications.
0: And in addition to those specific considerations in the context of licensing and collaboration agreements that you've helpfully talked through, what about other practical implications for deal planning? Can I ask you both to share some of your other top tips for investors involved in pharma MA? Yeah,
2: so I'll start, shall I? Um, I mean, it's really important at the outset to evaluate your NSI risk, so, detailed due diligence is required. Of course, it's important to remember that where the mandatory notification obligation applies, the sanctions for non-compliance are very significant. So the transaction will be deemed void. Fines can be imposed of up to 5% of global turnover or £10 million, whichever is greater. And there's also the possibility of imprisonment of individuals for up to five years, as well as directed disqualifications. So, of course, it's really important to carry out specific due diligence to understand whether a target company's activities could fall within any of the 17 sensitive sector definitions, and in particular, the three that Bob flagged at the outset. Now, in practice, in some of the cases we do, Bob, it's actually quite difficult to assess this in detail, isn't it, without the constructive engagement of the target company. But we do all we can to try to ensure as far as possible that we fully understood the scope of its activities.
1: Yeah, and and, and often, you know, it isn't a sort of a a bright line test. It is a case of apportioning risk between the parties and and, um, determining how to deal with that risk. Clearly, one of the ways of doing that is through um, a condition precedent in the uh, transaction documents or or to the extent it is a public deal within the conditions um, to the offer being made. And setting out in relation to that condition, whether it is um, going to be a mandatory or a voluntary filing and indeed um, how the process is going to work for for the making of those submissions and cooperation between the parties to ensure that you do get a certainty and be a quick result.
2: And then, of course, we're also thinking about merger control conditionality at that stage, aren't we? And in this sector, we, we need to remember that we've got that public interest criterion in the Enterprise Act. That means the government can intervene in a merger that qualifies for review by the CMA, where they are concerned that there could be an issue about the capability to combat and mitigate the effects of public health emergencies in the UK. So that's another thing that we're sometimes talking about and considering at the outset when we're looking at conditionality. And then looking at deal timetable, because obviously that's always really important to to get that clear or as clear as possible from the outset, need to take any NSI review process into account. And the good news, um, as Bob mentioned earlier, is that that almost all transactions uh, will be cleared within the first 30 working days. But where more in-depth investigations required, the review process can take up to 105 working days So pushing towards six months, really, and and even longer if the parties consent to an extension, which, of course, you would do in practice if the alternative is going to end up being a prohibition decision. So it's really important to factor this into deal planning, which, of course, is looking at lots of other considerations. Most of the time it's just a process and you'll ultimately get clearance. But it is important to fit it in with everything else, including the merger control points I've been talking about.
1: Um, and then another point is the grant of options. So, so, and I touched on this, this, this earlier, but, but in, in the context of collaboration and and investment in research in return for future rights, there is the possibility that the exercise of options to acquire IP could constitute a trigger event under the the NSI regime. And so it, it is important in this context to be aware that the same principles apply where you have an option to acquire rights i.e. over shares or voting rights, um, over a target company. And if the company is active in one of the 17 sensitive sectors, whilst the mandatory notification obligation is unlikely to be triggered at the time of grant of the option, but it could, and, and this is really depending on the degree of control acquired, be the case that mandatory notification and clearance is required before that option can actually be fully and properly exercised. So that's something else to bear in mind. Um, Also worth flagging um, are the potential implications of the NSI regime for venture capital fundraising for university-based research. Um, Raising funding for for, um, research to further um, innovative pharma or healthcare projects um, could result in mandatory filings if one or more of the investors acquires the necessary degree of control over an entity. And the research involves a sensitive sector, such as synthetic synthetic biology or AI. Now, in in, in our experience, carrying out the necessary NSI analysis and submitting a mandatory notification here is most likely going to slow down venture capital follow on transactions by around two to four weeks. Even, as we said earlier, where, where the case seems very straightforward and no national security concerns are likely to arise. And indeed, if there is any change in shareholding or investment syndication during this period, there, there could be a, a further delay because you would need to update the notification. And of course, this has the potential to cause difficulties in practice if the company is seeking investment, um, for instance, because it is running out of money.
2: And then in some cases, Bob, we we see that there could potentially be national security issues. And so we need to start thinking about that from the outset. Sometimes we think about pre-baking potential remedies actually into the transaction. So, for example, one standard remedy that we see is placing a prohibition on the amount of information that's going back to the investor. So that's the sort of thing that you can pre-bake into transaction documentation as well. And then other remedies that could potentially be relevant in this sector is, for example, having enhanced data security protocols and monitoring governance requirements. So restrictions on board composition in one case out of this sector, uh, but, but of course potentially relevant. We've even seen having a government observer on the UK company board. We've also seen remedies about maintaining HQ in the UK having certain headcount. And then one other remedy that could be quite relevant in this sector, we haven't yet seen this under the NSI regime, but we do see it in other FDI regimes, would be imposing some sort of r spend commitment. So quite a lot of points to think about when you're doing the deal planning. I think finally, it is worth reiterating a point that we've made in some of the other episodes, which is that the NSI regime here is quite unusual in the way it can also apply to internal restructuring within a corporate group, even if the ultimate parent company remains the same. So any company engaged in activities which fall within any of the mandatory notification sector definitions should be mindful of this whenever considering internal restructuring, and ensure that a mandatory filing is submitted where there is a relevant change of control. And then perhaps a final point, we've talked obviously about sanctions for failure to file. It is possible, and we have done retrospective validations uh, with clients. And so that's where you realise that actually something that you've done in the past should have been notified because a mandatory filing was required. So you can make a retrospective application to the ISU. And they can exercise their discretion to clear that transaction at that stage and also decide if they wish not to impose those remedies we mentioned earlier. So back to you Ruth.
0: Thanks Veronica and Bob. Um, Some really useful practical advice there for investors involved in M&A and the pharma sector. That's all we've got time for today I'm afraid but thanks to our listeners for joining us and please do let us know if you have any feedback on this episode or indeed any suggestions for areas to cover in future episodes of FDI Friday. From next week, we'll be moving on to explore other FDI regimes around the world, and we'll be kicking off with CIFIUS in the US and FERB in Australia. We do hope you can join us then.